Welcome to Lead with We. I'm Simon Mannering, and each week I speak with top business leaders and founders about the revolutionary mindsets and methods they use to build their bottom line and a better future for all of us by leading with we. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Ashwin Cherian, who is the co-founder and CEO of a plant-based subscription meal delivery service called Thistle. Ashwin co-founded Thistle with his wife in 2013, based on their own desire for convenient plant-based meals that are good for the planet. So Ash, I'm excited to learn more about your entrepreneurial journey and your passion for purposeful business. Welcome to Lead With We. Thank you, Simon. Excited to be here. You know, for every entrepreneur, there's that pivotal moment, whether you're in a corporate job or whether you've had an exit from another business, that pivotal moment where you decide to start something new. What was that moment for you, Ash? So uh, for exactly four years and one day, uh, in New York, I practiced law uh, at a fairly large firm. Corporate lawyer? I'm so sorry. Yeah. So, so currently I'm recovering. Uh, <laughs> it's a lifelong journey to go recover from that. But right. funny enough, the day I started uh, was September 2008. And um, I was waking up, getting ready to go to work and looking at the news. And it was the day that Lehman Brothers fell. So it was effectively kicking off the financial crisis. And I remember, th- I remember thinking to myself, man, it would be tough to be the law firm that does legal work for Lehman. And I show up at work and guess what? It was the firm that I was starting at. So it was a little bit of an odd day to begin, but uh, managed to make it through that period. Um, And again, exactly four years on the dot, um, decided to leave um, and actually took a four month honeymoon. So as you mentioned, again, Thistle Thistle was started by myself and Sherry Avnery. We're co-founders, we're also married. We're classmates from college. We've known each other since 2000. Um, and we had just gotten married in the summer of 2012. And I think we use that opportunity to really evaluate what is it that we want to do over the course of the rest of our lives, not just personally, but professionally, because I think a lot of people try to separate those two things. But if you uh, are dedicated to doing your best, whether it's personal or professional, those worlds collide and you have to examine those pretty closely. I have to say, though, you know, as a as a guy who's been married 28 years, the idea of working with your partner, that's the thing. It's a real conscious decision. How did you think through that? Is it something you thought, you know, this will be great for our relationship? Or did you think, you know, let's just try and see if it works? Yeah. So I think the best relationships, whether personal or professional, are ones in which you complement the other person. Right. So if you have different skill sets, if you have a, a, a different but complementary ways of approaching problems, and you're able to do it with respect and empathy. Again, these are these are reasons why a relationship works out. I also think that's the reason why a professional relationship works out. So oddly, we had already checked the box on, we felt that we could be with each other solving the problems of life. Why not just apply that to a company? Now, it's scary and terrifying to go do that, but we, we, we figured it could work. Um, and knock on wood, it's, uh, it's going fantastically. So tell us about that process, because it's great that you, you know, you kind of came together and said, let's launch something that's going to be meaningful to both of us. But there's so much need out there. There's so much marketplace opportunity. We're all interested in so many different things. How did you land on a meal subscription service? Yeah, believe me, I didn't, we did not leave our jobs saying, let's go launch a subscription delivery company doing high quality plant-based meals. It, like, that was absolutely not what we decided said. Uh, where we started were what were the big problems or areas that for us felt like we were most passionate about, right? And there were two that surfaced very quickly to the top. 
So even though I was a lawyer, um, very, very unhappily, I actually come from a family of physicians. So my parents are physicians. And in fact, my great grandmother, who lived to be 102 years old, passed away three years ago. Of her direct descendants, there were almost 40 doctors. She literally spawned a hospital. And I think the joke is that's why she lived to be past 100. So, right, right. And so the, the, the relevant portion of, of, of kind of sharing that is growing up, I learned over the dinner table, over conversations, who are the patients that physicians are typically seeing? And it turns out it's not the case that physicians are treating patients for all sorts of novel illnesses or, or things that you, know, you would see on a television show or a movie. Patients are coming in by and large for call it the 10 most common reasons why someone in a developed country like the US will get sick and eventually die. And the number one reason is cardiovascular disease. It'll kill one in three people every single year, followed quickly by type two diabetes, obesity, certain forms of cancer, stroke, hypertension, the list goes on and all. And all of these are heavily correlated to diet and exercise. And the frustrating thing for a physician is, I, all I can do in my arsenal is, I'll give you some medicine to treat your symptoms, but I will recommend that you have to make a behavioral change. And without fail, that person will go take the medicine, come back for a follow-up visit and do nothing to change their behavior because changing behavior is hard. It is. And so you're constantly sort of caught up in this remedial business where you're trying to fix things after the problem rather than being in a preventative business, which is, hey, let's avoid causing those problems in the first place. That's right. And so the medicine may alleviate the symptoms. It may actually extend your lifespan, but it does nothing to improve the quality of your life right? Who cares if you get an extra 10 years if those extra 10 years are bad years, right? Where you're, where you're struggling to be mobile, etc. And so kind of from a physician standpoint, healthcare came down to this notion of behavior change and preventative medicine. And as a physician, you're, you're, you're not armed with the tools to go do any of those things to help the patient actually get better. So that was a problem that I had been exposed to early on, was something that I'd always thought about. And in thinking about areas where I wanted to see if there was an opportunity to help people solve what I felt like was a powerful problem, that was one that came very, very, um, that surfaced very much to the top. Yeah, and, and which side of your brain were you listening with at that point? Was it like, hey, I'm looking for a marketplace opportunity, so it was you know, rational, or were you listening more with your heart from a purpose-led point of view and trying to decide what's going to be meaningful to us? Or was it both? I think it's a little bit of both, right? I think kind of for us, like in particularly for Sherry and I, we wanted to live life with purpose, right? We like, like I think, you know, again, we are, we are, we came from a very privileged place. I immigrated to this country. Um, my parents worked their butts off where they actually were practicing physicians in India, decided to immigrate here. And the funny thing is the U.S. does not accept the credentials for, Indian for the Indian medical system. So my parents who were practicing physicians had to go back into residency at the age of something like 35 with two kids, with you know, uh, other residents that were 10 years younger, and have to redo their training. And they came and restarted purely so that my brother and I could have better opportunities in this really great country. And so kind of this notion of um, uh, watching my parents kind of build their own business, their own practice from scratch, Right. And just seeing that while growing up was something that was very inspiring. And so for me, it was the notion of, of starting and building something from scratch was something that I always wanted to do just because I'd seen my parents go through it and do it and take such pride in kind of building things from scratch. Right. So that kind of bigger drive was there. Sure. Sure.
What was the reception you got? Because there's always that moment of inspiration for every entrepreneur, no matter what you do. And then just as quickly, there's always that reaction from friends and family who often say, hey, great idea. And you do realize that you're 100% unqualified to do that, right? Like, you know, you had no background in this area. What was the reaction and, and where did you start? Yeah, so uh, my, my mom, who um, was quite shocked that I decided to go leave uh, what she felt like was a very, very safe and predictable, financially stable career. And effectively, as she put it, she's like, so you're going to go run a restaurant. And I was like, no, not, not, not really. But she's like, you're preparing food to deliver to people. And I was like, yes. And, she, and I think I remember the first week telling her what our sales numbers were. But I was like, mom, we sold eight, we sold 20 meals. And she said, great, so you're running a failing restaurant. I was like, oh, <laughs> this is, uh, this, this is, I, I got to make this work. But I think kind of over time as Thistle grew and she realized the impact that we're having on people, that it wasn't just about delivering this product. It wasn't just del about delivering tasty meals. It was the outcomes that our customers were realizing as a result of having access to these products. For her, she's like, wow, this is amazing. I'm so glad you did this. It makes perfect sense. Right, right. And what I'm hearing from you is something that's so important for listeners, which is, you know, often we walk straight past what's right in front of us. Like in your case, you grew up around a kitchen table and a family environment that was laying out this undeniable need in terms of people's health. And that was part of your life, the, the fabric of the conversation around your kitchen table. And so when you wanted to become an entrepreneur, that's what showed up. That's what you'd been listening to. Would, would you say that's fair? I, I think that's absolutely fair. I think, as you know, Simon, uh, and I'm sure you've spoken to others, starting something requires an incredible amount of energy and resilience. There are so many opportunities where the faced with the decision of cutting and running and, and giving up, you're, like, the rational part of your brain should say, go do that thing, right? The only reason you stay with it is because of this emotional connection to the importance of the underlying problem. And as you said, you know, we both wanted to do something purposeful as a couple. And I get that intuitively. You know, you love each other, you're newly married. But were you really conscious of, you know, being purposeful out of the gate? Were you intentional about it? Did you think about your mission in the first place? Or was it something where you started with the product, but then that purpose evolved over time? No, we, we were very intentional about it because I think, um, again, I, I, I love my parents. They, they provided a, a, what I feel like is a foundation of just uh, just a good outlook on life. Uh, my dad always said, you know, when you get to the end of your life, no one ever says, I wish I made a little bit more money, right? Like that's not, that, that, like, that's, that's, that's not what, what's going to be important, right? It's going to come down to what impact did you have on something small or large, right? How did you improve someone else's life or how did you improve, you know, th this world for others? Because it's tough. Um, and I think he, they always kind of instill that notion of try to live your life where um, you can be proud at the end of the day, at the end of a career, at what you, what, what, what you kind of built. And as a, as a lawyer, I, there was no way that I could even identify even a shred of kind of uh, what that could be at the end of that career. And, and I would be remiss not to kind of share uh, my partner, Sherry's background. So she's a PhD in environmental science. So she's far more qualified than I am. She was effectively a climate scientist working at NYU, trying to look at the impact of air pollution on global crop yield and trying to craft policies to get countries and governments to make good decisions when it came to improving the imp improving kind of um, food scarcity in their countries. And in general, the thing she was frustrated was 
from an environmental science standpoint, people always seem to focus on things like recycling or driving electric cars or regulating the petroleum industry. But the one thing that people weren't talking about seven, eight years ago, you know, as, as, um, as prevalently as they're talking about now, is the impact of the demand for animals and animal agriculture on the planet. And for her, she found it incredibly odd that all of these people that knew the science weren't actually telling people that the single biggest impact an individual can have on the planet, candidly, is to reduce the demand for animals and animal products. Do you remember that, that the great movie, Inconvenient Truth? Sure. If you remember, at the end of that really great film, there was a list of things that you could do in order to kind of uh, do your part, right? Nowhere on that list was anything about reducing the demand for meat and animal products. Interesting. And there was a second version of that movie, and nowhere on that same list was, that, was, was reducing the demand for animal agriculture, which is kind of mind-boggling. Right. Right. And it's such an important topic and it was so ahead of his time. Yet for many, it was just like too much too soon. And it, it was almost seen as a boring topic, you know, mental note, don't invite Al Gore to, to a dinner party. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> There's research now that shows when you take that approach of fear mongering and really being alarmist about things, you know, you can actually disincentivize people. It causes apathy and passivity in people and they actually disengage with the issue. So help us understand your mission at Thistle more deeply. What does it literally look like and how is the business structured? So the mission, as, as we've codified it, is to help people get and stay healthy while improving the sustainability of our food system via plant-based eating. And I think kind of the, the thing that people miss when they look at us and see a food delivery company is like we didn't do this because we wanted to become restaurateurs or we wanted to kind of become people that provided a great delivery service. The outcome we're looking for is if we can give people absolutely delicious food where on an emotional level you will choose that meal over any other meal, then you don't actually have to make a rational argument at all because people will make the emotional choice to have that delicious tasty thing. And food is about deliciousness and the emotion and the experience, right? Now, if that thing that you provide people is plant-based and it's healthy and it's free of all of the processed and artificial ingredients and full of the things that people are typically missing from their lives, then people aren't sacrificing anything by having that thing. And if they can do that over an extended period of time, not only will they have an improved uh, quality of life going forward, you've also improved the health of the planet as well. So that's, that's the thing. It's, it's almost like a Trojan horse, right? You've got to give them a better product in the first place that improves their lives. And then the good it does is actually a byproduct of that. And let me ask you about that, because a lot of young purposeful companies and even established ones, they struggle with this. How much do you lean into that rational argument? You know, talking about, I don't know, climate change, loss of biodiversity, plastics in the ocean, all those things. Or how much do you lean into the product story, the, uh, the emotional argument? Do you find you throttle between the two or do you just let the food, you know, do the marketing for you? Yeah, and, and that's a great question. I think we did. And what we quickly realized is, again, most people understand the rational argument for why they need to make the better choice. The stuff that we were telling people wasn't kind of call it earth shatteringly new to people, right? I mean, people knew that. But fundamentally, again, especially when it comes to food, it is 
it is an absolutely emotional experience. And we realized that early on so that we knew that if we were going to win, it couldn't be because of the rational argument. It had to be because the underlying product was going to be better. And I think that's the really hard thing that we had to kind of figure out from, a th from our, our own business standpoint, because not only do we have to create a meal that's predominantly plants, right? That means, and it also has to be as or more delicious than something else that someone can get. And it has to be more convenient for them to access. And if you have to check all three of those boxes and you have to do it over and over again, that's a very, very difficult business to build. And that's kind of the, but it's also kind of the satisfying part of if you get it right and you see the outcome, it's amazing. When, when you put all the pieces together, Ash, I mean, I'm going like, wait a second, you've got a husband and wife team, which is, you know, it's a challenge in its own right. You've got no experience in the category. It's a super competitive, crowded category. You set this crazy high bar for yourselves. So tell us about the first few years because, you know, every entrepreneur comes out of the gate and they're anxious to get their first MVP, their first viable product out there and get some sort of market validation. What were those, those first few years like? Yeah, I, so I think it's a great question. Um, so we'd quit our jobs. We'd moved to San Francisco and we we're working on this idea and we'd see both of our salaries go from something that felt like it was um, very, very sustainable to literally zero. And in fact, we didn't, pay, we didn't pay ourselves for almost three years. And in fact, the story that I love to tell people when uh, they ask, hey, I'm thinking about doing X, Y, and Z from an entrepreneurial standpoint, the number of times that I had to personally write a check into my company in order to make sure that we made payroll. Like, I so know what you're talking about. It is brutal. And you're like lying in bed at, late at night, staring at the ceiling yeah, thinking, yeah. how am I going to get this done? Or more importantly, like, what have I done? Why did I ever do this, that, right? That's right, Simon. And the number of times that I managed to convince an outside investor to write me a check that got cashed in order to kind of make that next run of payroll. Like, it, uh, if you don't have the stomach to kind of do that, then it's probably the wrong thing for you to do. It's completely irrational, right? And that's why passion is so important. It's, it's that point you made earlier. If you're not passionate about the core subject or issue you're solving for, it won't be there to sustain you, you know, in those tough times. That's right. right. And exactly. And if you look at the probability of success against like the outcome, like it, it, it does not make even financial sense to do it. Right. But so that means that you're absolutely right. The only thing that you're left with is the importance of the underlying problem. And every time you reevaluate, it's like, is the thing that I'm doing still as important today as it was when I started? And if the answer is yes. And you have the chance to keep going. You should keep going. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the hidden benefits about being a purposeful company and solving for an issue that's so big is you're not going to fix it overnight. You're going to have this long runway that will keep you relevant in a sense. And so let me ask you, you know, you raised $10 million in a Series B to expand the business. So as you started to scale, did you find there was a tension between operations and cost efficiencies and so on and staying true to your mission or purpose? How did you navigate that balance? Yeah, so actually there was a lot more tension early days, right? Because we didn't have all this experience figuring out how to run an efficient restaurant, which is effectively kind of by and large what we look like from a P&L standpoint, right? It's effectively a delivery-based restaurant. Um, those first few years were very, very costly and painful learning for us, right? Um, it's a completely new business model. Sherry and I were doing almost every single function. She was manning customer support. I was working on the line with our you know, production employees, trying to make sure that things were prepared to spec, food safe. I was our first delivery driver. And in fact, for you know two years, I was in my car at six in the morning delivering meals to customers. 
And the amazing thing is I loved it because if a customer answered the door, it would give me a chance to ask questions about how was your experience? Why did you choose us? Where did you hear about us? What could we be doing better? And I'm, I'm sure on the other side, customers are like, why is this driver asking me all these questions? I know. It's like, that? wow. I mean, that, that is a great employee. What, you know, what was that? That's right. You know, so with Thistle, when did you know you had something viable going? Was there a point where, you know, it kind of took on a life of its own and you felt the marketplace rising to meet you? When did you kind of look at your wife and go, I think this is going to work? So, and the funny thing is, is that in building a business that is part technology, because a lot of what powers our business is the tech that we've built, but by and large, it is a, it is a physical operation, but, but the trend was drifting up. So like, there's never a point where you're like, oh my God, it's working, right? But there was a point where like, okay, we're doing better this week than we did last week. And then the week after, if you add that up over the course of five, six years, all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, actually we built something pretty big. And what about competitors? I mean, the meal delivery business is such a competitive space. So how did you carve out a, a niche for yourselves? When we were coming up back in 2013, that was the rise of the meal kits, right? Blue Apron had just raised a boatload of capital, uh, HelloFresh, a lot of the on-demand meal delivery companies that were in our space had just raised a lot of capital, right? And these highly capitalized companies in our space had effectively preempted our ability to actually go out and raise external capital. But I think what that forced us to do was focus on, and I'm very glad this happened, product quality and unit economics, right? We actually figured out how to build a good business because we didn't actually think all of this capital was gonna come in in the early years, right? And so what happened for everyone else was they had all this capital, they were told effectively or mandated, don't worry about anything other than top line revenue. Just go grow the business. We'll figure out all of the kind of the cost and the margins later. And guess what? At some point when people realize, oh my God, you have a lot of revenue, but the economics are terrible. Like the music, the like musical chair suddenly stopped. And then at that point it was like, when you have a very big ship and now you're trying to course correct, it wasn't going to work. You know, we had um, Blair Kellison on the podcast before, and he's the CEO of Traditional Medicinals. And he told me something similar that even though they're a very purposeful company, they consciously took a very operational focus for like 10 years and really made sure that the rigor of the business was in place. So talk to us about that. What did you do to make sure that the business in the first place was solid? Yeah, and this actually gets back to the purpose as well, right? Because all a company is, is effectively a collection of people trying to do a common thing together, right? Again, like it's, it's not just a P&L and numbers. It, it is just people, right? And so the one thing that we did really well is we always tried to get people that cared as much about the underlying problem we we're looking to solve. And then if they did that, then they translated into an extraordinary amount, extraordinary amount of going above and beyond on a day-to-day -day basis, right? If, if, if something you know, happened where 20% you know, of your meals like fell off a truck at two in the morning, that's the difference between a bunch of people showing up at 2.30 at a kitchen and redoing those meals in order to get it out to a customer. So how do you find those people? Because we all know younger demos, Gen Z and millennials, they look at life through a values-based lens. But how do you make sure that when you're hiring, how do you pre-qualify those right people? Because you know they're, they're gold to the business. Yeah, so one part of it is like, so for myself and, and Sherry, we're, or we're vegetarian. So like we care, we already care about living this lifestyle. We care about the importance. and. If you can find a few additional signals where if someone's like, I already eaten this matter and I have for so long and this is why, you already know that that underlying cause is important to them, right? 
And if you see someone that is leaving a more traditional job, which where they can't actually make a direct connection, right? And they're able to authentically tell a story on why this is important. You can very quickly figure out who actually is um, uh, being very honest about their intentions versus someone that's trying to say the right thing purely to get the job. No, I want to call out something you're saying. And we've heard what you're saying so many times over the years at We First, which is so many business leaders say exactly what you're saying, which is you can't teach people to care. That's absolutely right. Look, you can train people to do almost anything, but you cannot train for the actual caring and you cannot care. You cannot train people on curiosity. You cannot train people on enthusiasm, right? If they can display those traits, you'll, you'll be fine. You know, if you go to thistle.com and so on, you see that the crux of the issue is this intersection between human health and planetary health. You know, the, the well-being of the living ecosystems and the human ecosystems. But that's a, that's a fairly high concept, you know, to communicate to people. Can you explain that a little bit and why it's so important? And then how does a subscription service like Thistle, how does it play into that? Yeah, so uh, I think when I, this kind of twin kind of generational set of problems that we're looking to address, one, health of the individual, health of the planet, we found that the solution really is just eating more plants. It's actually relatively simple, right? And so what that means is for someone that was eating, you know, call it a traditional American diet in which a meal will contain eight to 12 ounces of an animal protein, if you can convince that person to uh, perhaps not eliminate, but take that eight to 12 down to three ounces, or maybe eat a entirely plant-based lunch, have whatever you want for dinner. If you can make some of those small changes and allow people to do that in an easy way, then over time and over a large number of people, you actually can have a tremendous impact on planet. And that for us has always been our approach, not have it be completely binary. We have to make a massive change, right? Because I think people, I think by and large, most people want to fundamentally do the right thing, right? But they either don't know how, or they're scared of making a big change, or you know, they feel like it's gonna be all or nothing. And if you can kind of walk people via this journey, wherever they are in that spectrum, and help support them no matter where they are, in a non-judgmental, approachable way, you'll find that people are willing to at least take that first step. And with that first step comes the second step, comes the third. And then you show people that not only are you doing this thing for yourself, but you're doing it for your planet, the whole thing snowballs and all of a sudden you can't imagine going back to what you used to do before from a behavior standpoint. That's such an important and powerful lesson to everyone that wants to lead a purposeful business because, you know, in inspiring true behavior change is what every brand has to do today. I mean, we need to do it for ourselves, but we also need to do it for all of us because all of our futures are being compromised. So you already shared some really important steps like, you know, not being judgmental, slowly upgrading. What else would you share in terms of generating authentic long-term behavior change? Yeah, and again, it, it, none, of, none of it individually is rocket science, right? Help people really celebrate their wins, right? What we found is one of the biggest barriers for people trying to make that change is, um, you know, people have indicated no one else around me in my immediate social circle is making that same change with me, right? So I don't have anyone helping reinforce this behavior that inherently is hard or daunting for me to do, right? So Thistle has to not only be the provider of the service or provider of the product, they have to somehow find a way to become that kind of social, um, that, that, that kind of uh, a, a replacement for providing that 
reinforcement, that, you know, celebration, all of the things that allow people to continue to go on that hard journey, right? And whether that's as a company, for, for us, it's also connecting our own customers with each other so that you can form an, your own tribe of people whose sole purpose is to help each other, answer questions, provide a positive, encouraging environment. That's how you kind of generate change in the long term. You know, sense of community is critical because, you know, you've got this platform on which your products are sold, but then it's the community that keeps everyone together and reinforces that new behavior. So help me with this, you know, as far as the storytelling goes, how do you cut through all the noise out there when people think mill subscription? So they think of Thistle first. I mean, especially when so many companies are talking about the same things like the environment or being more healthy or social impact. Yeah. So again, we're big believers in grassroots. So we, we, we try to engage with our own customers as much as possible, whether that is um, via our Facebook group where we've connected our customers, right? Whether that is through our marketing efforts. And candidly, a lot of it is on how much Shiri and I can do to directly be the voice of the company for our consumers as well. Because this notion that we kind of started with on um, authenticity and enthusiasm I think consumers are very, very smart on trying to figure out is a message delivered authentically or not? Are the leaders of a business living through those values that they're putting on their website or not? And the only way you can do it is by engaging directly with, with existing and prospective customers. And if you're able to, if you're able to do that, um, if you're able to do that well, which again, if you really do believe in your underlying mission, you should be able to then you'll see that kind of flow in and it'll, 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 it'll help you grow your company, get new customers and you know, ultimately long-term build a more durable business. I mean, everything we've talked about up till now has been about you know, upwards and to the right, the good stuff in the entrepreneurial category. But if you look back now, Ash, and you know, you're sitting around the kitchen table, was there ever a moment where your wife looked at you and said, Ash, I can't believe you did that? What's the most sobering lesson you've learned along the way? Man, it might be 10 lessons along the way, whatever, you, you know, whatever comes to mind. Um, man, uh, I, I struggle to like think of a, a, of a single example. So a, a lot of call it the bad decisions or call it things that Sherry would say, because she's definitely the more sober of the two of us, was how, qui how quickly or aggressively perhaps we might have launched new products or saying yes to a consumer ask. So one of the things that we had early days for our customers was, you tell us if you had a, a you know, an allergy to a specific ingredient or, or a like or dislike to a specific ingredient and we'll accommodate everything. In early days, people would say, uh, I don't like onions and eggplant and cilantro and this massive list. And I remember at one point, there were something like 30% of our customers had all of these crazy requests when it came to their specific preferences. It made things an operational nightmare. And, and, and by the way, if you're setting the expectation that you're gonna honor those requests, there's nothing worse than actually failing at that. It actually is far worse than setting the expectation that you weren't actually going to be able to accommodate that at all. So I think kind of this kind of notion of trying to overextend for a customer in all cases, that was a, that was a sobering lesson early on. I, I totally get it, especially in the beginning when you're like, somebody likes us. Let's, let, let's give them everything they want. Exactly. Um, Ash, thank you so much for the insights and also congratulations to you and Sherry on the success. Where do people go to find out more about Thistle? Yep, so they can go to our website, www.thistle.co. 
Um, and that's a great place for um, customers to learn more about us, what we stand for, the products that we offer. Um, we're currently available to consumers um, that are located on the West Coast. Um, we do local delivery in, in the Bay Area, greater Los Angeles, San Diego, Sacramento, Seattle, Portland, and we ship to the, the greater West Coast. And at some point um, uh, uh, later this year, hopefully we're launching on the East Coast as well. So Great. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure, Ash. Of course. Thank you so much, Simon. It's a pleasure. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Lead with We, where I spoke with Ashwin Cherian, co-founder and CEO of Thistle, who shared with us how to go from the spark of an idea to a thriving purposeful business in a competitive category, and how to inspire your customers to become passionate advocates that build your business with you. Our show is produced by Goal17 Media, and you can always find more information about our guests in the show notes of each episode. And if you'd like to learn more about purposeful branding, check out wefirstbranding.com, where we have lots of free resources and case studies. Make sure you subscribe to Lead With We on Apple, Google, or Spotify, and do share it with your friends and colleagues so they too can build purposeful and profitable businesses. Also, starting next week, you'll be able to watch episodes of Lead With We on YouTube at We First TV. I'll see you on the next episode, and until then, let's all lead with we.